Sir, a gracious good day to you once again. Welcome to Fusebox, episode five. That's right, Twisted Epiphanies. I promised it, and by golly, here it is. And not only that, it appears it's going to be two shows. We have so much material here that there is no possible way I'm going to cram this like this right here. into one small package. Um, I don't think it really would be smart. It would be messy and there'd be tentacles and we don't really want to get into any of that. So welcome back again. And uh, yeah, things are, uh, things are kind of percolating here. I've just got to mention a couple of things here before we leap head first into this program. First of all, if you have not heard uh, P.K. Rivers' Overnightscape Central that deals with Sun Ra, I would urge you to drop everything, including if you're driving, just stop the car, run right now, and listen to that amazing lecture. Holy Saturnian crab cakes, Batman! Now, if you don't know who Sun Ra is, and that's highly likely, um... He was an incredible jazz musician who, in his early part of the career, would you'd actually probably label him more straight ahead, kind of bebop, kind of that stuff. But then as time went on, Sun Ra found himself into um, a sort of uh, other dimension and created this orchestra of his that was doing music from Saturn. Well, and actually, I'll tell you, irrespective of belief system or whatever. It's pretty cool stuff. I gotta give it that. Um, you gotta listen. But he, he was artist in residence, evidently, for a while uh, at Berkeley. And this was like in the 1970s, very early 1970s. And this lecture that PQ uh, put up the other day, courtesy of some organization I have not heard of, was very captivating. This guy goes through linguistics. He goes through the history of time and space, pretty much. It's really worthy of, uh, of taking a few minutes to listen to. It's a little, it's, I don't know how long it is exactly. It seems like it might be a little shy of an hour. I'm not sure, but uh, fascinating. And uh, as PQ mentioned in the beginning of his show, don't get turned off by the first four or five minutes of this. Just, just let it go because you, you will be rewarded if you hang in there. So uh, thoroughly recommended. The other thing that was uh, fascinating to me, because this has been something that's, um, that I'm having to deal with <laughs> right now. Frank Nora, on his program, The Overnightscape, uh, he, uh, I think this was show number 1158 called Dance, Rants, Laugh. 
he made another one of these observations that is so incredibly poignant and really synchronistic because I was kind of going down this same path about the same time he was saying it. And so it's kind of odd. But Frank was talking about this sort of substance that all of us probably touch when we're involved in some form of creativity. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's painting the house, mowing the lawn, doing gardening, whatever it is. It's something that involves your heart center, if you will, your core activity, whatever it is. And that by doing a certain activity, we get almost a, uh, a euphoria. I, I, I don't want to call it that, but there's a, a, a certain feeling that comes from doing a creative work, particularly in the process of it. And then, if we're all really fortunate, an exhilaration after it's done because it's really cool and we like to do it, which is why many of us do this, I'm, I'm sure, you know, same thing. But he was mentioning that an interesting byproduct of that is sometimes our lives are a little chaotic during that time that we're in, investing in creative pursuits. They are not without complications or in some way maybe even a little suffering if that's how it goes sometimes. What I found fascinating is for me right now and anybody who's a, 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 an entrepreneur or a sole proprietor or any of that kind of thing will definitely identify with this. Our business kind of has sine wave patterns. It's up. It's down, you know, and we take the praise, the glory, and we also have to take the things that aren't so great, uh, all within that same little bundle. You know, for me personally right now, this is a very, very creative time. There's lots of creative stuff going on that is, you know, for me, the reason to keep going. <laughs> but on the business side of things, it's a little slow. And, and whenever I reach a period like that, you know, the business side kicks in and goes, wait a minute. That's, well, we, we, there's fires. We need to put them out. Come on, let's do something. I wrestle with that a lot. But what Frank was alluding to was that sometimes this energetic dance between chaos and this creative thing that we all do, for some reason, tend to power this creative pursuit. Now, I don't know why that is either. I don't know what the balance there is. I can tell you this, in most times in my particular life, it's always been thus. I don't know why that is. That's what's firing off the creative stuff. and Or the creative stuff is there, but it's being fed by this thing as well. When we're in a creative pursuit, we get the big cosmic nod when we accomplish something. We get there, we get it done, we like it, whatever it is. That's the reason you do it. And that never gets old. We just keep doing it. You know, I'm not one that subscribes to the starving artist thing. I don't think the, the suffering has to be a manufactured thing. I think, you know, life will introduce enough challenges for us all to have to deal with that and, and go through it. But um, it's really interesting that this perplexing system exists because I'm, I'm, I can't figure it out. I was a little shocked that Frank brought it up because, no, it really seriously is what's going on. And I'm, I'm you know... I'm just, I'm amazed by it. It's, it's, you know, it is the nature of our business. Like I say, anybody who's an entrepreneur or does any sort of self-proprietor type of stuff, we all know this. This is, this is the way it is. But, uh, and I personally wouldn't change it because it does afford me to be able to do this. So that's the deal we're dealing in.
so this particular episode is, is going to deal with the mind's eye. Part of the reason that I'm in this world is probably because that is the greatest palette to work with that we have. First of all, the listener is the director, the cinematographer, the lighting person, why, even props if that's necessary. It's all happening in your head, the mind's eye. It's an incredible cineplex of experiences. One of my favorite examples of this is a poem. No, 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 no. There they go. No, I hear you getting up and going. No. Heading for the exits. Don't do that. It's it's a piece by a guy named Richard Brodigan. Now, some of you may know Richard Brodigan. He, he I, I found out not too long ago he actually lived out here in the Northwest for a long time. But I w- I had found him when I was about 17 years old and for some reason, <laughs> big surprise, was captivated by this guy's work. He's, it's not all poetry. It's prose. It's just it's stories. It's, it's very interesting stuff. Uh, Mr. Brodigan passed away several years ago, but his work lives on. And one of the pieces that I love, because not only the title, but also the functionality of this particular poem, if you can call it that. So this poem is called The Third Eye, and it's in a volume called... Rommel drives deep into Egypt, and I think it was probably originally published in 1970, but it's still out there. And it goes exactly like this. There's a motorcycle in New Mexico. That's it. Okay. Your mind's eye just did all the work. (laughs) Not, Not only is the (laughs) The title of that thing, perfect, because it demonstrates exactly what's going on when you see that motorcycle in New Mexico. Even if you've never been to New Mexico, you can kind of paint one of those sort of roadrunner, coyote kind of settings and you kind of get it. You know what I'm saying? But even if, if, if not that, something is pictured there. If you're fortunate enough to live in New Mexico, I'm sure you can picture the exact location. But uh, in any event, you can picture it. And that is kind of the thrust of this particular episode regarding a project that we've been working on for a couple of years now called Twisted Epiphanies. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that. Busted again for cheating at cards in an Old West saloon, Shorty put up a desperate defense. My father beat me. I've got inner child issues. I'm ADD. I suffer from manic depression. I just can't stop drinking. I'm lactose intolerant. Twisted epiphanies. This idea came many years ago. My writing partner, Gerald McQuinn, and I, back in 1975, tried to do, well... I don't know we could say we tried because it was economically unfeasible to do it, but we had a concept called Moods of Chen. And Moods of Chen was supposed to be a series of short images that had a very specific mood connected to them, and they may only be about 30 seconds long, but they would present a certain mood and energy. They were designed to be 
interstitial programming, something that could be dropped in, and in most cases, public television, could be dropped in between programming, but it would require something that hadn't really been invented yet. It, it would re have required a, a certain CG because uh, the computer graphics idea played uh, pretty prominently in this, this idea. We didn't know that at the time. That really wasn't you know, something you, you could do. But we had graphic ideas about it, what would happen in these little things. And, and it was a great idea. It's just completely untenable. Beyond that, we got into the radio shows and all of that and, you know, kind of left all this stuff behind. At one point, and this must have, this must have gone back to 2008, I guess now, we sort of wanted to revisit this in an audio-only form. We did. We, we produced a couple. One you heard a couple of shows ago called Domino, which is that odd little piece about the guy who's working at a security station and seems to be invaded by giant flying things. We don't know what. And uh, then we did one more uh, in the same series that I'm going to play now that uh, is a little more of a linear storyline, also features the voiceover of uh, Shannon Day on this as well. This is called Waterhole, and uh, I think it's kind of self-explanatory, but uh, let's take a splash. So that cheery little piece is called Waterhole, and that was written by Gerald McQuinn. And that 
was sort of a step in the direction that we were wanting to explore at that time in uh, spoken word and audio and shorter things, not quite so epic, you know. And so uh, time went on. I stumbled across a couple of pieces written by a gentleman named Lawrence Overmeyer from a book called Gone Hollywood. And I was also taken by the fact that, wow, you know, these would make pretty fun audio adaptations. I wonder if he'd be up for that. I approached Nancy and Lawrence with the idea of perhaps doing that. Well, actually, that's not true. (laughs) In the spirit of full disclosure, no. What actually happened, folks, was that I took one of these things and I just did it. And then I just sent it to them. And I was hoping that the next sound I was going to hear wasn't some sort of thermonuclear blast. Because let me explain something that's very important. People who write works like this, frankly, any works... The author has a certain attachment to that, which is natural and genuine, and really doesn't want that message fiddled with. Because hmm, when you do that, you know, you you may have another take on what they proposed or what their ideas were. So I was taking a bit of a risk there and uh, just kind of, yeah, threw caution to the wind, as they say, and uh, uh, presented it to them. And much to my surprise, Larry said, Amazing! And that led to a a bunch of other stuff. But uh, rather than prattle on about them, I would prefer to introduce you to them. Nancy McDonald and Lawrence Overmeyer. So I want to thank you both again for taking the time out of uh, your schedule, which is as maddening as everyone else's these days, to uh, come be part of this program. I've been trying to put this particular episode of Fusebox together for uh, several weeks now because I I want to get people involved who have been um, associated with the Twisted Epiphany stuff in one capacity. And, And you two guys have been associated in a very deep and uh, inspirational way. And I'm, um, I'm talking now with uh, Natch McDonald and Lawrence Overmeyer. And uh, I, I wonder if you guys could just tell our, our delicious audience uh, a little bit about your backgrounds and where you come from and who am you anyway? Okay. Well, we am. Um, actually, uh, first, I have to say thank you so much, Mark. It, it's not work when we get together with you. It's always a joy. <laughs> and we're so glad to reach people out there. Yeah. Um, I'll just briefly say that I come from an acting background. I started at a wee age and was in New York, was in Hollywood. And luckily, uh, while going through the dregs of my career, met Lawrence Overmeyer, and we have not been apart since, both as a couple and as a collaborative team. And so um, I started, I veered away from the the acting, and now I'm focusing mostly on teaching and teaching other actors, Mm. but uh, still keep my toe in the water occasionally. But mostly I focused in 2007 on starting a publishing company because I sensed that there's this new energy all around books and getting the word out to people and it just so happened uh, my partner had a lot of books and um, (laughs) we wanted to start controlling what got out there and not turning it over to an editor and saying do you want to rewrite this Mm -hmm. so um, that's kind of how we started on this road together and I'm going to let you and and I'm an actor too I was in New York for many years uh, pursuing an acting career and I did uh, some Broadway, some television, soap opera work. And then I made the move to Los Angeles uh, to try to get the career going a little further. And that's when I met Nancy and we started kind of going down a different path. We 
we first formed an organization called the Writers Lab, which uh, was bringing together actors and directors and particularly writers. And we were, we were trying to promote quality writing in the entertainment industry. And, and it was quite successful. Uh, it got very huge quickly. And uh, then the Northridge earthquake hit in 1994. <laughs> oh, no. And uh, that was kind of a shocker. And um, we, we kind of got overwhelmed at a point because the work got so massive. Mm. And then um, we had our parents were having health problems mm. back in Ohio, where both our families were from. And we decided at that point to to move back and take care of some family issues. And meanwhile, we got into some other things while we were there. That's when I really got into poetry. Mm. And I started writing a lot of poetry. And we also did a comedy act at that time. <laughs> did That's comedy right. and, in uh, Ohio. It can so, be done. So I was doing a lot of comedy writing and uh, as well as poetry. And our careers kind of look, kind of took a different tack. And, and after being in Columbus for a while, and, and there was kind of an artistic wasteland, actually, for, for us back there. And we had to get mm. out. So um, we went to the West Coast again, but this time we chose Oregon, and that's why, why we're here, uh, basically in Portland now. But uh, but anyway, so I basically come from an actor background, and uh, I, I'm I'm now kind of a writer more than an actor. I, I'm really focusing on poetry, and I do a lot of genealogy. I'm working on a couple of genealogy books. Oh, but I have to preface that with, I mean, you hear the word genealogy, and you think, oh, there's somebody who writes some dates, and who was born, and who died. Right. No, 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 no. He's finishing a book right now. It's a 500-page book that is so much history and story, and it's amazing, and it becomes the story of America watching these families unfold. Mm. It's just beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, that old TV show Roots, it's kind of a similar idea where you're telling the stories of the generations and how they impact American history and culture. And it's it's fascinating. I just find it ordinary people really have an impact and they n never get any press, of course. Of course not. <laughs> but, uh, not. but I like right. to focus on them. Yeah. I, I also just say, just, you know, back up a little bit here, too, that you, you say that you're not doing as much acting now. It, it, it will be my mission to get both of you in front of the <laughs> mic as much as possible uh, in terms of these <laughs> in terms of these things, because uh, we got a lot to do. So uh, the thing about this that I found compelling from the very beginning, I, I got introduced and I, I can't recall the exact situation, what it was, but. I think Nancy gave me a copy of Gone Hollywood, which was mm -hmm. one of the uh, editions that uh, Lawrence has written. And it's all about, uh, which I'll let you elaborate on, but it's all about down there. And uh, I just, I was taken by uh, several of the pieces in there, but one in particular that just rang like a cathedral bell was Message in a Bottle. And I, th that's one of many that we're going to hear uh, in a moment here. But uh, can you tell me a little bit about this, the uh, inspiration <laughs> for Message in a Bottle? As a poet, I'm constantly watching our society and kind of taking it all in. I'm very curious about the world. Everybody knows that the world right, right now is pretty crazy. <laughs> I mean, we have uh, economic, political, social, spiritual turmoil. The the climate's changing. We've got uh, financial upheaval and uncertainty. Uh, species are becoming extinct. Our, our envi environment is being totally polluted and poisoned. And then we've got, uh, you know, nut jobs like ISIS out there, the extremists that are really, you know, throwing the world into a tizzy. So all of this stuff has an impact on me as a, as a poet and an artist. And uh, I guess message in a bottle is kind of a metaphor for, for the the dark side of technology 
And and I I'm a big fan of technology. I, I like a lot of the progressive kind of things that are happening and the capabilities that it gives us. But every technology has a dark side, and TV kind of exemplifies that. Because TV, when it came out, could have been a wonderful thing. We could have been educating people, spreading knowledge and wisdom, and and it's become an, an advertising medium. It's been <laughs> it's been taken over by commercial interests. And now, in the last you know twenty years or so, it's become a, a political weapon. It's a propaganda tool, mm-hmm. and it's telling us how to think and who to be. And people are so susceptible that uh, nobody's using critical thinking anymore. We don't even know how to discern between truth and falsehood and yeah. and on a on a certain level that's very disturbing yes it <laughs> and is. that's what this poem is really all about a television creeped in through the back door when we were on vacation it stole into the living room disguised as a necessary component of a modern day lifestyle so we didn't notice it for quite a long time It seemed harmless enough, kind of cute, actually, but it began to grow. We fed it little bits of attention at first, but soon it wanted more, and more, and more. We threw it scraps of idle moments and snippets of an hour, but still it grew and grew and grew, till huge chunks of an afternoon and evening, whole weekends and slices of terribly gloomy days were not enough to satisfy its need. It spread its boxy fingers into every corner of the house, up the stairs into the bathroom, down on the mantel in the den, then to the kitchen and the bedroom, even beside the baby's crib. And still it sucked away the hours, gobbling fortnights with a trowel. We, desperate for some respite, gave it everything we had, our hearts, our minds, and even more. And now this huge, invasive, caterwauling psychoblob of perfidious bizno battle is holding an advertisement to our heads and threatening to take over the world. It's too late for us. But if you get this message... Please, whatever you do, run, hide, anything but save yourself before it's too late. You may not know it, but uh, Message in a Bottle and Technoman were winners of the uh, Barnes & Noble Everybody Reads contest that year. They like to pair it with the book they've chosen. Well, the book they chose that year was Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Oh, wow. Great. So they glommed on to Larry's poems, and he won two of the prizes. That's and excellent. That well, it's not surprising because, you know, speaking just from my little domain here, the reason that I got attracted to wanting to, to fiddle with Lawrence's work <laughs> was the the was the idea that... Uh, you know, when people think of poetry with the big yeah. stone quotes over the letter, yeah. when they start thinking about that, sometimes they switch out. You know, unless you unless you have a mind to to kind of grok all that, the tendency in most people, I think, is, oh no, am I going to have to think? You know, that kind of thing. And and yes, you do have to think here. But what you what is incredible for me, at least, what, you know, in terms of being a producer, was 
The language is so economical and insightful and chewy. You can you can get something <laughs> happening there. The unpacking, if you if you so desire to do so, happens pretty naturally and without a lot of coaxing, and certainly not with nine degrees or PhDs and anything. You can get your head around this. It's making it's making really perfect sense, and I love that in a lot of these. And it's not all just humor. I think one of the other pieces that um, we're also going to feature here is something called Iranian Girl, mm-hmm. which uh, is a very st- in stark contrast to the to the previous election. Um, this one has some some very political overtones, obviously, but it's it's also extremely heart centered. Can you mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that? Well, um, going along the same theme of what's happening in the world, we're constantly being sold violence and being sold um, a division between us and them. And this is very dangerous way of thinking because we're not seeing other human beings as people. And we're certainly not seeing them as just the same as we are. And so that's what this poem is all about because they've been talking about a possible war with Iran for uh, years and years and years. And the poem came out of it at some point, but uh, and if it's not Iran, it's somebody else. And, um, you know, we, we stop to think of who are we, who gets killed here? Mm-hmm. And this is a poem about a little girl who gets killed by a bomb. And who cares? Right. And if we don't say, I care, the world is in big trouble. That's right. Yeah. But again, like you said, Mark, it's there's something about his work that just draws you in and I think part of it is he is a storyteller at heart mm-hmm. and so it's not yeah I mean you hear the the what this poem is about and you think oh I don't think I want to but it just it's it's lovely it's it's poignant it's heartfelt it takes you through a story in wordplay that allows you to take the journey and when you're done with that journey you're changed The Iranian Girl There's a hole in the ground, a moving of earth, now made a sad depression, where once she played in puddle rain, splashing with the joy that comes from childlike feet. The sound is still here, in the air, the breeze yet carrying the secret laughter that haunts the waking hours of those who've lost the way. How vain to think that memory can be erased. All will remember, no one escapes. I wonder if she saw it, the moment before, her hair still flying free, the metal catching that last pure glint of sun. Did she hear the explosion that made no sense? Did she feel her body come apart and fall like dust too soon? Does anyone ask whatever she felt, whatever she dreamed? Her dreaming time is gone, and no lofty word of God or glory will ever make it right. Dare to listen, and you will hear her. Dare to open your eyes and see the Iranian girl, no different, like you, like me. You know, that's one of the poems that went into his book, The One Idea, that saves the world. 
like you said, too, he's got many different voices. And that particular one, I think every time anybody reads that poem, they just are so incredibly moved, uh, find it powerful, want to talk about it. And that, to me, that's why I love his work so much and why I'm excited about getting it out to a, uh, an audience through your mm-hmm. methodology, because you change it even more and you make it come into your ears in a whole different way. Yeah, and that's and, and, really and, exciting. Well, let me, <laughs> let me hasten to add something here, too. Let me tell you, you know, I have had the the, uh, the pleasure of working with uh, writers in various capacities over the years, but poetry in particular is one of these things that can be very touchy. And Lawrence was never that way. It was, it was sort of like, yeah, see what happens. Yeah, throw anything. Go to see. I mean, this is a very personal piece of work, and you know, with that sort of collaborative spirit, the only thing that can possibly come up from that is something good. I think. Yeah, yeah. So I was delighted to have the opportunity to kind of play with that, and it it has definitely inspired uh, many more of these things. We'll have more with uh, Nancy and uh, Lawrence on the next program. I do want to play this piece as well. This was uh, another adaptation, another variation on a theme here. This one written again by uh, Gerald McQuinn. It was actually the first of three pieces. We're going to hear the first one right now. It's called Insider Info. And uh, I think, uh, again, (laughs) I think, well, I think it's all pretty self-explanatory. Insider Info 1, February 1st, 2003. Oh, say can you see. Blue Kachinas meteor the sky. Do you read Palestine, Texas? Do you read Palestine, Texas? Do you even think to wonder why, as the Xbox boys avatar over to Iraqi arenas, 35,000 black voters turned away by state troopers, names the same as Willie Brown felons in Abilene, borrowed by oilman Jeb. In Chad's stupefied swing states, Supreme Court bribery goes unseen as Blacklight Borealis harmonic gates and black hole creating Tevatrons in Never When Too Late. So on our next program, we're going to have an interview uh, with Jody Lorimer, who wrote the uh, Dark Energy piece from last week's show, if you heard that. We'll also feature a new one from her called La Paz. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Jeff Pollard again regarding John the Heathen. There's uh, a few other little bits will be thrown in there. And uh, we'll have the conclusion to the interview with Nancy and Lawrence. And uh, also, I just want to say that there will be links in the show notes here to both Nancy's publishing company and Lawrence's stuff and anything else that might be of pertinent information. So once again, I thank you for pushing play on this particular episode, and I hope you will join us for the next one, which will delve even more into this strange and somehow obtuse world we call the mind's eye. 
Until our next cartoon.